0: Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. So, uh, morning everyone. As Kitty said, my name's James. I would, For those of you who don't know, I was with you last year, uh, probably about 18 months ago, in your <laughs> All One series. Um, when the words of Arnold Schwarzenegger as almost an answer to him, I am back again. So, um, very much welcome. This time I'm speaking about something very different. Um, I'm wrapping up the series you've been looking at called Twin Tracks. Uh, inspired by the book of Psalms, looking at this tension we see in our lives and in the world around us. So just a bit of a recap. Um, So first, Simon gave us an introduction to the series, acknowledging the history of the Psalms and how the Psalms are not a literal guide, but an articulation of real people making sense of their world. And then we heard from Jake about the tension of Torah and Messiah, dipping into the Messianic Psalms, that point forward to Jesus, and how we look back from the point of Jesus. And then last week we heard Simon talking about the twin tracks of lament and praise and how God's love could be the third <laughs> track between those twin tracks. And this week I'm talking about the final track in the series, which, uh, spoiler alert, it's on the screens. Um, we are talking about Faith and Hope thinking about the idea that tracks lead somewhere Um, and so asking ourselves the question where are we going and how do we continue to go still living in a world where we experience lives filled with these tensions and nuances so before we move on why don't we pray let us just still our hearts god who delights in us Renew our minds to give us an ever clearer picture of who you are. God, who favours us, help us to reframe our vision of ourselves on this journey of becoming. God, who can hold the full breadth of our emotion, help us to retell whispers of the hope that hibernates in us. (coughs) Help us to resist in a way that prophetically declares your kingdom. All of these, as we apprentice ourselves to you, that we might follow you in a more authentic way. Amen. Amen. So for those of you who like to know where we're going in a sermon, which I must admit I am one of those people, um, we're going to kick off with some context, briefly looking at those, those two words, our twin tracks for today, faith and hope. And then we'll be thinking about three psalms in particular, um, looking at what does it mean to have faith and hope in today's context and explore some questions around that. And I've even started every point with the same letter. So don't say I don't ever treat you. Um, but, uh, But yeah, but looking back. Um, The Bible Project video that Simon showed us in the first week, the narrators discussed that not only do the Psalms help us to articulate the complexities of human emotion, but as we progress towards the end of the book, they become forward-looking. The idea of faith and hope, therefore, are etched across the Psalms. I think this becomes particularly poignant when we think about the context that they are written in. The psalms were most likely compiled in and therefore likely used in exile. For me, this makes the idea of faith and hope in the psalms ever more powerful. Imagine having lost your home, having been forced into exile, and you sing out and pray words like these on the screen. So I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And finally, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And we'll be revisiting those Psalms a bit later. But for me, reading those Psalms in the context that they were written in moves things to become far more revolutionary. Speaking of a future they did not yet realise becomes something that creates perseverance the ability to keep on going whilst traversing the twin tracks. And we read in James 1 that the testing of our faith produces endurance. We can see in the writings of the Psalms the practice of digging in deep, of living in the tension of the twin tracks. And we've explored that all over this sermon series. And we live in the tension of the now and the not yet, the things we are seeing and the things we long to see. We read in Hebrews 11, a long list of times where we see this tension. We read about Abraham, who was hoping for a land for his descendants, which he did not yet see fully realised. But also, he hoped for the opportunity to have children, and he saw that revealed in the birth of Isaac. We read about Moses, who saw the hope of the Exodus. His people released uh, as they uh, saw that, realised as they escaped Egypt. But he did not see the hope of the Promised Land fulfilled in his lifetime. And we read about other biblical characters, people who saw signs and wonders, but also people who died without seeing the signs they hoped for, instead hoping for a greater resurrection. And therefore, hoping in the sea of the now and the not yet doesn't mean that we'll always see what we hope for. Faith and hope are not the same as wishing on a star, where where because we hope, we will see it fulfilled. Hebrews chapter 11 starts with this verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To have faith and hope in the midst of the now and the not yet, in the te- this tension of the twin tracks, means we have a hope even if we don't see what we hope for come to fruition. We have an assurance and a conviction. And it is not a blind hope. We read in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen, and if Christ has not raised, been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I mean, man, Paul. Oh, wow. Um, Our hope is rooted in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, our hope is in vain. Our hope is therefore Christ-shaped. It is Christiform, if you will. We therefore look at everything through the lens of Jesus' resurrection. And as we walk in the tension of the now and the not yet, we do so rooted in the hope of the resurrected Christ. Unfortunately, the thing about tensions is, is they, they aren't clean, they're, they're pretty messy. And I think that makes us feel uncomfortable, especially for a nation that loves to queue. I mean, we love things in order. Um, the, Psalm paints, the psalms paint a different picture To hold on to a faith and a hope in the midst of tension invites a messy, not so clear-cut picture. We see that from the brutal honesty in the pages of scripture. We see people processing real emotion, asking real questions. We see the rawness and in the anguish of the human experience as we turn through the pages of the Psalms. Recently, I've been listening to this song um, uh, by a collective of songwriters called Songhouse. And this particular song that I'm I'm just going to show you some lyrics for uh, is called Drunk Again. And for me, I think it it really depicts the idea of a modern psalm. The first verse and chorus say this. Oh, I didn't ask for the scars I've been given. That's the price you pay for someone else's sinning. The preacher said I'll find a reason. Don't have the heart to tell him I don't believe him. Some call it a habit, some call it a sin, some call it a pattern. I don't know where this ends. They call me a daughter, but I don't believe them. Baptised in the water, don't feel any different. All I know is it's sign, and so I lift up my hands, worshipping Jesus, but I'm drunk again. And I think, to me, this shows faith in a snapshot, and the faith that we read about in the Psalms, the faith we read about in Hebrews, the faith that says, "I don't know, but still I worship Jesus. I don't feel the feels, but still I will show up. And as we journey through the messiness of faith, we have to consider what our "but still" is, our sense of assurance and conviction. And for me, that has to be christoform. For me, when I uh, feel a sense of overwhelm of the what-ifs of faith, I have to come back to uh, my "but still." And for me, my but still is that but still there is something that is so captivating about the person of Jesus. It was that but still that kept me going through my theology degree as I was challenged on some of the aspects of my theology. It was that but still um, that I would think about when I would have a little mini existential crisis in the toilet in the break of my lectures. And it's that but still that keeps me following in the way of Jesus today. And I wonder, for us here today, what our but still is as we navigate these complexities of faith and hope in the twin tracks. And I would also say that faith and hope aren't passive. We can instill practices that can help us build faith and hope in our lives. And to help us think about this, I want to offer us three R's um, that that are some suggestions of how we might do that as we dig into some psalms. So the first R is reframing. To begin thinking about this, I want to offer you a question. What kind of God do you hope in? When we were looking at those three passages earlier from the Psalms, we read this from Psalm 2, 7 to 8. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Here we have a God that calls us his children. How we are and who we are at this very moment in time in our being is a child of God. That is something that extends to who we were yesterday and who we will be tomorrow. And we heard from those song lyrics, they call me a daughter, but I don't believe them. And I think we are really good in Christian circles of downplaying a bit of cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is this inner conflict that we have in ourselves of our own beliefs and values. And I've been working through a bit of these with a spiritual director that I have. And I've been talking about how many times do we, do I, do we maybe read off a script of belief? um, But maybe if we're going to truly examine ourselves, we don't actually believe it. And I wonder for some of us here today, if we have a bit of that around believing our status and standing before God as his child... That this standing is not because of anything we have done, but because of who we are innately in our being. But I think it goes further. It's not just that we are God's children, but we read about in Matthew three seventeen that when Jesus was baptised, he comes out of the water and God says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Now, I'm a bit of a, um, a fan of looking things up in the Greek, um maybe that's sort of like a bit of a nerdy trait of mine but i enjoy it because sometimes it adds a bit of color light and shade to the text and in the greek the word for pleasure uh, means uh, to be well pleased with to take pleasure in to be favorably inclined towards one now do we believe that if we turned that meaning to ourselves and considered it a definition of how god sees us would that be true? That not only are we God's children, but God takes pleasure in us. And that God's pleasure, God's inclination towards us is a constant state of being. And I think sometimes we risk with, uh, in our relationship with God being based on a transactional relationship. If I do this, if I say this, if I believe this, then God would delight in me. We read that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, yet we put caveats on it for ourselves. And we have the joy as followers of Jesus to walk in the knowledge and the abundance of God's delight for us uh, as children of the living God. No ifs, no buts, just because. And so one of the ways which we can help build faith and hope in our lives is to re-examine our thoughts about ourselves and who we are in relation to God. And if needs be, from that deep examination is then we frame our beliefs of self and of God. This also gives us the basis of a truly authentic faith where we don't have to find ourselves pretending before God, but instead bring our full selves before him. Our second art our second practice, is uh, the hope as retelling, and I think it hel- uh, helps to build hope is practicing this art of retelling. Now I don't know about any of you. Um, but does anyone, has anyone got those stories that they tell um, where at the, time, um, at the time when something happens, it's a series of unfortunate events, but when you retell the story, it becomes something of a bit of a stand-up comedy sketch, um, or it becomes just a bit more dramatic, you add a bit more flair as you retell. Well for me one of those times, um, the abridged version, don't worry, um, was on a trip I did undercover to Morocco. Now I'll tell you about that over the coffee if you really want to know more. Um, but we did a hike in the Atlas Mountains and we were told that we were going to be going, going for two hours but it turned out to be six hours because the people leading us didn't have a watch. Um, we then ran out of water because half the group bailed um, with most of the water in their bags The remaining water I had, um, I lost because I fell off a mule hurtling towards a cliff, I fell on my back, thought I was bleeding, and then in sheer panic decided, uh, as an adult, to exclaim at the top of my voice that I'd wet myself, um, when actually it was just a remaining water bottle that had burst, um, breaking my fall. And then we had to climb down a very steep incline of a cliff uh, because the rainy season had washed the path away. One of our group was climbing down in front of me and and the ground broke beneath them. Uh, They slid down on their derriere and the thing that managed to stop them falling further was a cactus. Um, And so he found himself with some cactus pins in some rather inappropriate places, should we say. But not only that, he decided to wear white trousers and the mud was red. And we've all made a bit of a fashion faux pas in our lives, don't get me wrong, but I'm sure that none of us have made it look like we got a little bit too scared falling down the side of a mountain. (laughs) Now, I'm not gonna lie, that that time was not gonna get a five-star rating on TripAdvisor from me, but looking back in the retelling of the story, the experience becomes transformed. And we read in, in Psalm 118, 21 to 23, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes there is something about transformation here the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and in our retelling we can transform situations that help to engender hope in others and I think that's something that becomes particularly powerful when we remember that context that the compilation of the Psalms was in exile and it wasn't just the Psalms uh, that were thought to be compiled in the form that we have them in, but the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And I think uh, looking through that lens helps to add a particular dynamic uh, to the stories that we might otherwise miss. We read in Exodus uh, 24, 9-12, to how Moses and Aaron and some of the leaders of Israel go up the mountain to see God collectively for the first time. And when they see God... <laughs> God is to be standing on this rock called Lapis Lazuli, which I always get wrong how to pronounce that, but Lapis Lazuli. And it feels a bit of an odd detail, doesn't it? You go up to see God for the first time, this this massive moment, and the distinct detail is he's standing on this rock called Lapis Lazuli. And it feels a bit odd to mention. And Rob Bell, in his book, What is the Bible? says we need to pay attention to the weird bits. He mentions that the rabbinic tradition talks about scripture having 70 faces and that as we read it, as we think about it, as we question it, it's like turning a gem and we get to see different parts of the story. Different things come to the forefront that paint us, an ever, uh, paint us a picture of an ever-expanding ever picture of God and it was after reading this book that i began to ask myself the question why is that there every time i would read something a bit weird um that i found a bit odd in scripture uh, and i read this part in scriptures are spending time sort of following the israelite journey from exodus to the promised land and as i read this i felt drawn to this detail of the idea of this lapis lazuli why would god be standing on that specific rock and it felt like an important detail that the the, the writer the author wanted to communicate now as As I mentioned, the first five books of the Bible, along with the Psalms, were compiled um, after the kingdom of Judah was taken to exile in Babylon. And if we're really nerding out, which you all know I love to do every now and again, it's why we can read when Ezra returns um, from exile with Nehemiah to rebuild the temple. We can can read that when Ezra was speaking from the scriptures, the people that remained in Jerusalem uh, and weren't taken into exile thought he was reading something different. They hadn't heard those stories quite the same way before. And so scholars believe that the final editions uh, were made in exile in Babylon. And so the stories that we read in the Pentateuch and the Psalms are stories that people of God were telling to themselves whilst in captivity. And so with this in mind, uh, I read, when I read this for the first time, I wondered if Lapis Lazuli had some, anything to do with the Babylonian Empire. And in fact, um, in, the, in the capital city of Babylon stood something known as the Ishtar Gate, built by Nebuchadnezzar II, uh, who is said to be the king of the Babylonians at the time of the fall of Jerusalem. And in Babylon, at the start of each year, there would be this big procession heralding the success of the Babylonian Empire and the supremacy of Marduk, the Babylonian god, over all of the earth. This procession would start at the Ishtar Gate. And what was it made out of? You've guessed it. Uh, lapis lazuli. This is a reconstruction um, of it. Now, I don't know about you uh, if that was a thought of the process um, to why it was mentioned in this verse. However, I think there's something incredibly powerful about telling a story where your God and the God of your ancestors, the Lord of heaven and earth, stands on a symbol of your oppressor's power and might. Then as you're made to watch this procession, through the grand archway made of lapis lazuli, you tell a story of how God appears to his people standing on that very same rock, that God takes a symbol of your oppression and makes it but rubble beneath their feet. Imagine the power of telling that story, whispering it among the streets of that same city as part of a wider narrative of, uh, uh, from freedom, from oppression and slavery that one day you might return to the promised land too. This shows that not only stories are powerful, but they can be a tool for subversion and revolution. These were people who were oppressed, taken into captivity, yet they chose to tell a story of freedom, and a story that in turn engendered hope. And this isn't a false hope and toxic positivity. In, in no way did they shy away from the brutality of their oppression. But it shows that the stories uh, it shows that stories uh, have the power to connect with the realities of our world, the mud and the mire and the grit, and in the midst of that, to speak of a new hope and a different future. The stories that we tell and the lives that we lead as followers of Jesus in a time of transition and change can both connect with the pain of our world and point to the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. And as a challenge for us all, do we live lives uh, and do the lives we lead and the stories that we tell speak of a resolute hope? Do we meet people in their pain and journey with them as carriers of hope? Do we extend that hope to others? Do we dare to tell a different story? And finally, our, our third R is hope as resisting. Simon, what's that, what's that symbol? Do you know it's putting you on the spot? No, he doesn't. Know. It's actually the resistance symbol from Star Wars. Simon and I have just been really cracking into the Mandalorian <laughs> this weekend. but um, Well, so that's what Google told me, so I might be wrong yeah sure okay maybe i'm wrong um but uh our final r is uh hope as resistance hope as resisting um and it helps to build on that previous point of retelling and we read in in psalm 147 2 to 3 the lord builds up jerusalem he gathers the outcasts of israel he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds and I love reading that passage in the knowledge of a song being sung like that when you're being taken into captivity. Uh, Psychology Today, there was an article in Psychology Today, and it said that hopelessness often coincides with a narrowed perspective of what is, import, uh, what is important or possible. To, therefore, to, to build hope, therefore, means uh, to, that we sometimes have to resist a narrative that seeks to limit what is possible, And so how do we resist, especially when we might face systems of injustice, of violence that seek to belittle or rob dignity from others? How do we resist in a way that is prophetic and builds hope? Well, it might surprise you, but I believe that Jesus, um, in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, displays this act of resistance. Uh, And in in that chapter, he says this. You have heard it said eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If any of you slaps, uh, slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue uh, you, take your shirt and hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow uh, to borrow from you. And And I think in that passage, there there is a bit of resisting going on there, but in a different way, a resisting of cultural expectations and in doing so, shaming an unjust system and turning it on its head. Uh, Walter Wink, which I believe is a great name, um, writes in his essay how turning the other cheek defies oppression. How these three ways that, that we saw about in that verse shame a system. And so first we have the turning of the other cheek. Now, it's common uh, for people to discipline those who they thought were of a lower status than them by hitting them with the back of their right hand because the palm um, would symbolise the fact that they were equals. And so by someone turning the other cheek, they were giving the attacker a choice to hit them with their left hand, but that wasn't possible because it was seen as an unclean act, or to hit them with their fist or use their palm. In turning the other cheek, the attacker would have to either shame themselves or attack the individual like an equal. Secondly, we have the giving of the shirt. This particularly speaks to a court situation. And if you're being sued and all you can give is your shirt, it means that people are exploiting those that are in poverty. To give your coat would mean that you would have essentially be stark naked. Now, in that society, the shame would not be on the individual who was naked, but on those who saw that nakedness. So in giving over the coat as well as the tunic, the person would be shaming the audience of those who were standing by and watching this exploitation take place. And also the person that had taken them to court. And thirdly, we read about going the extra mile. What Jesus is speaking about uh, is when a Roman soldier would force a person to carry their pack for a mile. However, going further would mean that that soldier would be subjected to a penalty under military law. By going the extra mile, the person would be subjecting that soldier to military law. And imagine the sight of your oppressor running after you, begging you to stop carrying their things. All of these examples are of a prophetic resistance. Not only does it invite justice and not retribution or revenge, but it also exposes that system that exploits the oppressed and marginalised. And it's a shame that sometimes our Christian tradition has turned these things into be a really nice thing that we bend over backwards or maybe sometimes we crochet it on a pillow um, rather than the revolutionary aspect of which it was intended. In our lives, we are also called to prophetically resist. To do things that shame systems, that seek to exploit and oppress, to maybe perform actions that society would deem weird, that maybe those in power might sometimes deem offensive, but that seeks to extend and walk in the way of Jesus um, by standing with those who experience injustice. And we have seen over history stories of people that have done just that of nelson mandela martin luther king jr of of rosa parks of people that have prophetically resisted unjust systems in a way that in turn engenders hope in others so much so we retell their stories and feel inspired to continue resisting and those are quite big actions but we can also resist in small ways in the office in the local community with our neighbors small ways which can help bring about the kingdom of God and so as we come into land I'm just going to invite the band back up as we as we come down coming to land and so as we navigate faith and hope in the twin tracks as we move forward I want to invite us to practice those three R's of reframing of retelling And of resisting let us do so acknowledging what we have learned from the rest of this series of the twin tracks this has all been about navigating what it means to live in the tension whether that is Torah and Messiah lament or praise or maybe some of the other tensions that we may face that we haven't explored and ultimately coming back to what Simon brought to us in the first week about the Psalms being an authentic expression of our emotion in our circumstances. That we can bring our full, authentic selves before a God who is is for us and pleads with us, even amidst the mud and the mire of our situations. Let us pray. And I just want to invite you, if you're able to, please do stand. We're just gonna pray that prayer that we prayed at the beginning. (coughs) God who delights in us, renew our minds to give us an ever clearer picture of who you are. God who favours us, help us to reframe our vision of ourselves on this journey of becoming. God who can hold the full breadth of our emotion, help us to retell whispers of the hope that hibernates in us, Help us to resist in a way that prophetically declares your kingdom. All of these, as we apprentice ourselves to you, that we might follow you in a more authentic way. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Which @Riverside.